0: I never give up. I
1: never give up. I never give up. Hi, guys. Welcome back Turn to My around. Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Jeff Neff. And today is a very beautiful day for another interview because I've got Lisa Genosa with me. Lisa is a, a woman who, not by her own choosing, um, has become an expert. In, in in, helping others to, to deal with addiction from the view of the family and the view of the loved ones. And this is such a, a powerful and important role because if you think about it, chemical addiction is one in three out there. And if you now imagine that each and every uh, one person has at least one significant other then you have to say that addiction actually affects 50% of the population at least now this is huge and therefore uh, there is such a such a gray zone that no one actually talks about in society and i'm here to make this world a little bit better one interview at a time and so is lisa and lisa i'm so so glad that you came onto my show welcome
2: Thank you so much for having me. This means mm. the world to me, and I'm mm. really excited to share.
1: Mm. We both ended up in this situation here today. And if you, if I would have asked you 20 years ago, hey, or maybe as a little child, you certainly didn't wake up one morning and say, "Yeah, hey, cool, hey, mummy, I know what I do. I'll write a book about about families and addiction." Hey, you no, know, who did you want to be when you were a little girl?
2: Oh, wow. I had, um, I had a, a little bit of a tumultuous young childhood. So I really didn't have a grasp on what I was going to do, but I always, I always, always pulled towards biology and the sciences. I was always interested in that and, and sort of the psychological component of that. Uh, however, <laughs> I'd never being a, a person that works in science and, and, medicine, there was never a point where I thought, you know, I'm gonna write a book. I'm literature and English mm. were never in my, you know, future mm. really. Matter yeah. of fact, I didn't I didn't really care for those courses.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And, uh
2: and and yet um what our family went through, uh it just started pouring out of me. And mostly because I would I would spend so much time with my patients and talking to them and They were always lost, as as lost as I was for so long with my own son. And so, you know, I I started writing more as a therapeutic purge. And somewhere along the way, it it became clear that the the words were potentially going to help somebody else. So I started sort of formalizing what I was writing. And then it it turned into, wait a minute, there's a million resources that people need access to. Yeah. And information. Yeah. And the part that I didn't get in the beginning <clears throat> was really the decoding of the language of addiction. I didn't know what so much meant. And I feel like if I would have known much, much earlier, I wouldn't have been able to help my loved one much, much earlier, right? and And that's my goal is to is to get this stuff to people sooner so mm-hmm. they have more of that intervention to help someone. That they love so much with this with substance use disorder.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. You were pointing already to your profession that yeah, you, and your love to biology, psychology. What was yes. your nursing career? What, where did you what did you go into addiction at an early field? I know that that your father was actually a DEA uh, uh, agent, was actually working in uh, in in actually the the, the law enforcement side of yeah. addiction um was there did he talk about his work at home
2: it was actually my mom
1: your it was mom, actually oh, wow. my mom.
2: It was, that's okay excellent comment common you know miss like
0: understanding, my, my, so. yeah. oh wonderful <laughs> wow Power yeah, woman. Mom,
2: and um she she had such a powerful influence in my life because my mom had five children and still worked in liquor and narcotics as an agent, and um, I just looked up to her so much for that reason. And there was this. There was a point in my life where I thought I I need to find a way to combine law and medicine. This is not, under any circumstances, how I thought it was going to happen. But guess what? <laughs> I work in medicine every day as a physician assistant in family medicine,
0: right. but
2: I now work with law enforcement uh in in crisis intervention training beautiful. uh basic law enforcement training mental health training beautiful. and working on the legislative level as well so here i am working in medicine and law and beautiful. that's what i wanted to do when i was you know first getting started in, in in school
1: and that is so beautiful that is so necessary because we have got always um certainly over the last probably what uh 50 years i guess at least there was a clearly a criminalization of addiction addiction was a a matter of the law um it was a prior to that it was a a moral issue um and so it was really the, the understanding that addiction is actually a mental health problem um that that really only came about what 10 20 years something like that yeah and there is still in law enforcement circles around the world, um, there is still, um, I guess, that that grasp, that that, that attitude, um, because addicts do bad things. There's no two ways around that, because they need money. They need a fix. So therefore, they do whatever is necessary for them to stop the pain. Um, And therefore, that is what, unfortunately, the police has to deal with. Um, and it's lovely to hear that you're trying to humanize the perpetrator, and that is, I think, such a wonderful thing. But, I mean, how the hell did you get into that situation? Tell us a bit about your story with your son.
2: Yeah, uh, we got into that situation because of a very bad outcome with law enforcement. Um, My son was suicidal. He had a blood blood alcohol content of greater than 04 which we know know, can be very, very serious, very deadly in some cases. Um, The night that he was suicidal, he had also hit his head. So he was transported to the hospital and for head injury, for intoxication and for uh, suicidal um, ideation. And ultimately a, a number of things had happened, but they did call in a mental health deputy, which is supposed to have an additional about 20 hours of training to handle that situation. The the, the, all the individuals involved, emergency room physician, the um, on-call psychiatrist, the social worker, they all agreed and definitively definitively said he needed to go to um, a mental health facility because of his uh, suicidal Mm. Mm. uh, ideation. Um, There was a lot of stuff that happened that night. He was unarmed. He wasn't harmed to anybody else. The only person he wanted to hurt was himself. There was underlying trauma. That we didn't know about yet. Of course, nobody at the hospital knew about yet. But we learned that later. However, it really shouldn't have mattered. Mattered that that night, there was an officer that came in. He was not happy to be there. It was the middle of the night. He was dealing with another drunk, you know, um, and, and not happy about it. He took him to jail that night. Um, with they got him out of out of the bed. He was completely exposed in the front. His gown was open in the front. He had no clothes on underneath. They had him in handcuffs and they took him to jail instead of the mental health facility that night. Uh, After a while, they took off his handcuffs. He was able to cover himself up. And within about 12 hours, they put him in solitary confinement. So for about three days. So as you know, anybody that's suicidal, the worst case scenario that could happen happened to him. So furthered, you know, any kind of Trauma or subsequent PTSD from that event really just uh, made things so much worse. So as a result, um, it took a while. Initially, I wrote to legislators and I, you know, went to the ends of the earth to try and get help for him. Hmm. He ultimately was put in jail for a little while and then went to rehab and was sober for two years after that. And we thought that was his rock bottom, but that ended up not even being close, believe it or not. But as a result of what happened to him that night, it was really critical to me to understand, you know, after I got through the anger and the, the, the disappointment and really the rage about what happened, I said, why did this happen? What happened to this professional that was supposed to take care of my son? So I looked at it and I said, there had to have been some professional burnout, some compassion fatigue, maybe his own mental health was in poor check. And that's what really instigated. Once my son was sober, I then took my opportunity to volunteer and go out for crisis intervention training to teach officers about mental health, about um, de-escalation about crisis intervention mm. and about their own mental health, like having their own check. And it was, it, it was really transformative, not just for me, cause it, you know, it was very healing for me to be able to do that.
0: Mm.
2: And I know that, look, I, I want to say this is not, this was not a systemic situation with our police. I never felt that way. I've always been very supportive. You know, my mom was uh, an officer mm. my whole life. I've always been supportive, supportive of the police, <laughs> but I felt like there were particular situations, like with my son. And I didn't want that to happen to somebody else. And that's why we do these things. You just don't want these horrible things to happen to somebody else. And so I really, it was pretty amazing because boy, at the end of some of my talks, really like hardcore narcotics agents would come up to me that have been in the field for decades, tears in their eyes. And they'd say, you know what, I, I, it's time for me to do some self-examination. And I said, that is the only reason I was doing this.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What time frame are we talking about here? When was the 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 sort of critical event um with your son? How old was, was just, Sorry. Well, he you, you was first.
0: about oh I'm sorry.
1: No, no, ladies first, ladies first.
2: <laughs> it was December 5th, 2017. So that was about six years ago. Mm-hmm. So he was in his early 20s. What happened.
1: was the lead up to that? Was there, were with hindsight, were there the, the signs on the wall? And you were oh, just, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. So what were some of the signs that with hindsight you picked up that your son was not happy, that things were not as straight as you thought they might have been?
2: So he had uh, his addiction started at the age of around 12 to 13. He started drinking at his father's home. Uh, we were divorced and we didn't know that he was drinking and certainly wouldn't have any reason to say, hey, don't don't drink over at your dad's house or call his dad and say, don't. You know, there's just that didn't seem logical at the time, but mm-hmm. he was drinking. and He found that uh, alcohol became a very um, immediate, soothing remedy mm-hmm. for him um, right from the start. Um mm-hmm when he was trying to deal with, you know, young teenage years and awkwardness Mm. and Mm. things like that. Well, it, it escalated and it escalated and we didn't know. And, and I always emphasize, you know, I'm, I, this is a medical home. I'm, I work in medicine. My husband works in Mm. medicine.
0: Mm. You
2: would think maybe people would think these folks should have been more aware, but we were not, we were not. He had the typical, um, Sort of signs, or you know, you know, mood swings and difficulty sleeping, maybe some changes in school, uh, some challenges with relationships. He had, you know, bullying uh, that was happening to him. So there were things that, you know, but when you're going in those young teenage years, there's some overlap with normal hormonal changes. Normal, you know, um, uh, when when young people are trying things for the first time, just seeing how you know
0: mm. what
2: they like and what they don't mm-hmm. like, and so you you have some expectation. But where things went really bad is in college. So he left for college and he was kicked out within about three and a half months. And the college called at that point and said, you need to get him some help. He's in trouble
1: wow.
0: with,
2: yeah, with drugs and alcohol. Wow. And so that was really our first awakening. You know, he was really incredible at making us believe that he was OK and going to be OK. So we proceeded to let him sort of make some, some choices for himself. Those choices turned out pretty bad. And he, um, things got worse and worse. And he had before the December 5th um, in 2017, he had gone to rehab already, I think once or twice. So the the December 5th rehab visit was the third or uh, maybe second or third. And he went a total of nine times.
1: Define rehab to me. Are we talking to traditional rehab, in uh, the inpatient rehab, um, four weeks kind of um, thing?
2: Yeah, the inpatient rehab nine times. He also, a couple of them were a little bit longer. The first one was a three month program that he left early at about two months. Um, he went to inpatient, he stayed with outpatient, like in, intensive outpatient therapy.
0: Okay.
1: He
2: stayed in sober homes. So, you know, he's kind of been through all of that.
1: Well, wow. you were pointing towards the alcohol as a as a sort of early start. Um, yeah. You then also mentioned drugs. What drugs came in?
2: The, the main drugs were um, marijuana, cocaine and hallucinogenics. Wow. Okay.
1: Later. Put it all in shake, add some hormones. Oh, my God.
2: Oh, my God. When the brain is trying to develop
1: exactly exactly right oh boy uh it is hard for you because here you were uh, still a single mom at that stage
2: no i was married and um so i did have some help but it was i still felt alone for a long time and that was my fault that was my fault i didn't i didn't want to make put the the pain and the pressure on everybody else. So I took on most of it initially, but my husband was always right there, a rock ready to help. But I pushed him away from a, for a long time and, and until, you know, later, and then he became an incredible support system for both of us really, for my son and myself.
1: Which is so lovely to hear because ultimately it is um, it is a very lonesome place for any parent. Uh, yeah. To to be in such a position, because there is all this guilt, there's a, yes. a degree of shame. I mean, did you? I mean, Absolutely. you were you were pointing towards the anger and the, the frustration to start off with in that particular incident, but now here you are. I mean, the the, the writings were on the wall. Uh, was there a lot of self-flagellation there? Was uh, did you uh, uh, probably a lot of soul searching? Let's put it positively. Um, were you yeah did you think that you were part of the problem?
2: Oh, oh my gosh, absolutely. Hmm. I held on to guilt like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, people hold on to error. I, I, I <laughs> It was all my fault for the longest yes. time. And hmm. it, it's something now that I really, really work with people, work with parents to free themselves from that guilt because we all do the very best that we can with the knowledge that we have at the time and yeah. what I didn't understand later is guilt is something that is a is a, an, a manifestation of what happened before in the in the past
0: mm. so
2: it's not it's not based on what you know today right if you knew what you knew today you wouldn't have done what you did then so guilt mm. is something that is just something from the past that we're holding on to but we didn't know any better than I, I really, you know, at the time now I understand and really working with my son too. My son is in, incredibly emotionally intelligent. We have a great relationship. He's, he's a, one of the biggest parts of how I got through all of this, believe it or not, and understood this, but he helped me to work through that guilt and to understand that it wasn't my fault. And it, and that wasn't, that was really important. And it's really important for people to understand that earlier on, because you can wallow in guilt and you can lose your identity in guilt and you lose the fight when you're sitting in that guilt for years and years and years. And that's what I was doing.
1: Wow. Wow. What to say? Wow. This is, um, I'm just reflecting as a parent as a man who has been drinking himself far too much therefore was not there for my children at a crucial time in their life because I was working far too long hours and then drank in the evening so I was an absent absent parent for for a lack of a better word and there is do I feel guilty yes I still feel guilty and certainly my younger son, who is nowadays 20, uh, for a long time, he told me, yeah, shit father, kind of a thing. He left me alone mm-hmm. and and blamed me, um, to a certain degree. Um and it is it's coming to terms with um the difference between having done something bad and being a bad man. And that that is the the key thing that we need to understand and that that is full circle now back to law enforcement and and the attitude towards mental health patients as well as towards a towards addiction um because uh, hate the addiction love the addict i think this Absolutely. would be the this would be the key message that we both want to bring out um and wow but this would have taken some time for you I mean, this, this, this. Would, there would be a huge transformation waiting for you from 2017 towards towards now. How did you go about that? I mean, who helped you? How did you get those insights?
2: That's um, such a great question because it is a transformation, and it doesn't happen overnight. Huh. It takes time, but I think the biggest, the foundation was that I educated myself. Um, I was already, like I said, like you, like you, like you pointed out, I was a, a PA, but I worked in family medicine and I do do a lot of mental health and mm. I take care of a lot of families that are dealing with substance abuse and, but I still didn't have some of the most fundamental bits of information that I needed to help myself and help my son. So I started educating myself at, mm. at the very ground level and that started opening me up. And I don't just mean like, you know, of course I, I tried Al-Anon. I went to meetings. I I did uh, family group meetings at when it, my son's rehabs, mm. I did all those things. Um, and they were, they were really important, but as I started to understand the disease of addiction, so that was critical for me because I have to know why for everything I have to, that's my, you know, it's a curse. I have to know why, <laughs> why, you know, why, why did my son, have yeah. this does he does he have this and why um what is the underlying source the cause that that core right so i started digging deep and reading everything i could get my hands on for about 15 years hmm. and that gave me um so much power hmm. knowledge is power right so i had so much knowledge and that i turned that knowledge over into educating not just myself but starting mm-hmm. to educate others, which gave me more mm-hmm. freedom as from my from my guilt. And then I started to advocate. So I went from education, educating myself, educating others, and advocating for mm-hmm. everyone. Because the more we're advocating for everyone involved in addiction, we're advocating for ourselves and for our own loved one. So we have to we have to be out there. And the other thing that helped me tremendously, you know, I did the I did the obvious stuff. I, I started going to therapy. I started working out, making sure I got the best sleep I could under the circumstances. That's hard to do. Hmm. So I really tried those things. But the thing I think that really pulled me through after educating myself and doing those others was the volunteer part. So I went into the into in with incarcerated individuals that are in a recovery program here where I live. And they're in a, uh, it's called the Sheriff's Heroin Addiction Recovery Program. And it first started with just men before the uh, pandemic. And then it transferred into both men and women. And we had, it kind of shut down for a little while. And I talk about that in the book, but hmm. later it it opened back up and I'm, I'm back in there now. And it's wonderful again, because I, I love working with these individuals. These are folks that kind of vetted into a the heroin program on you know while they're in uh, jail while they're incarcerated um and they get to be in a you know a recovery program that's really funded by mostly volunteer it's mostly volunteer funded but the university's involved you know i'm in like uh, professional you know people are involved lawyers all kinds of individuals uh, social workers students Mm -hmm. social workers things like Mm -hmm. that and so they have a lot of um access to a lot of recovery efforts that um, they wouldn't have, you know, otherwise, and then they leave there and, you know, kind of the re- So my whole point is, is to reduce recidivism. You want to keep them from going back into jail. And this gives them some of those tools necessary to do that. So nice. that's, I think if, if, if you can find whatever it is that is a sense of hopefulness for you as the mm-hmm. family member, even when you're in the midst of the worst with your child or your spouse or your parent, hmm. um, reaching out to help others is—it's one of the hardest things to do when you're fearful for the lives of the one that you love. But somehow, and I don't—I don't understand how—it's <laughs> the nature of the universe. But the more that you put out, the more it comes back to your family, <laughs> as everyone says, <laughs> and yeah. your loved one sees that and it helps them heal as well
1: that's true that's very true and that's the 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 post traumatic growth that that we all are able to tap into if we're willing to do so if we do our own work to actually get there but let me go a little step back you were saying you were saying something interesting because you mentioned that the incident with your son, the, the key incident, uh, was 2017, but you mentioned okay. that already for 15 years you had an interest in that topic. So something would have sparked that. And what I want to do now is, is be a bit of devil's advocate and uh, and maybe dig a bit deeper, and because I want to go genetics and epigenetics. Genetics is basically, we have got about 50 genes uh, that are isolated that working together make you a little bit more likely to uh, become an alcoholic or become an addict down the line. So if you were to go back to yourself, um, and maybe in your line, uh, going back, um, has there been addiction there? Have you had your experiences?
2: Actually, I don't. Um... My family, I, I understand that they maybe great grandfather, great great grandfather kind of thing be, before I was born. There may have been an issue way back then on my side. My son's father's side, which I, you know, we divorced when he was very young. He has pretty strong addiction in his family himself, his father. Mm-hmm. Um, so the genetics were definitely there. I think the, the genetic line is a lot more you know, widespread than we than we think, Um, Mm -hmm. whether it's a recessive gene or a dominant gene, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's in a lot of folks, but my son definitely had it, there was probably some from myself, and then quite a bit from his his father. Mm -hmm. And um, so yeah, so that was part of, you know, his unfortunate underlying Mm -hmm. story. That's what he kind of was born into.
1: Exactly. And you can't do anything about that. That is genetics. But there is epigenetics. Now epigenetics right. means the soup of influences that from internal or external, wash yes. over these genes and switches some of them on or off um, depending upon how we look after uh, ourselves or how we look after our family. And I think that is the the key to it. We nowadays know that, for example, an early exposure, to alcohol um, is uh, actually very detrimental. Um, It makes it far more likely that this young, growing brain says, ooh, I like that. Yes, please give me more. Um, And that's where some people advocate actually the drinking age should be 25. Because when you start drinking after 25, it's far less likely that you develop alcoholic tendencies compared with uh, starting earlier on. Um, so there is that. Um, it's interesting to hear you sort of saying um, the, the 15 years, though. What made you go into that field? What, what happened 15 years ago where you actually became intrigued?
2: Well, again, I, I think that the, the thing that made me want to go into medicine and law was the combination of my, my mother's work, I suppose, just I being guess, surrounded yeah. by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. but you know, the, the, I I've been immersed in this for 15 years with my son. Right. And I didn't, really get into the advocacy of it until maybe five years ago or, more, gotcha. or like a little, a gotcha. little before. So gotcha. I've been immersed in it, but I couldn't start doing anything. And the whole point of the book was to say, get busy before 10 years goes by. Don't wait a decade.
1: Nice. Nice.
2: Like, I, like I did. That was, it was, it was foolish because I was, I was absent for a decade. No one saw me. I was hiding. I was in just, I was in my own health, but I recognize now that you said this swoop of influences, I completely recognize now, which I didn't then. And these are, these are important things to also be able to say, you know, oh, these are the things why you shouldn't have that carry around that guilt. My son and, uh, you know, my, my, my ex-husband and I divorced when my son was very young. He is more recently in the last couple of years, started to understand the sort of known now abandonment issues that he was not willing to accept for, I mean, he's almost 30. So he was not willing to accept Mm. that that could even be in his world that, you know, but he absolutely has every symptom of it in terms of not feelings of inadequacy, feelings of unworthiness. Um, And he's felt that way his whole life. I'm not worthy. So when he found alcohol at the very young age, like you said, very young, 12 to 13, that, cemented in the genetics,
0: mm, mm.
2: then the epigenetics that were occurring, and the young age that it happened at, the effect of it at that moment, the effect was profound, he says, found God in a bottle, as you know, people say, Ooh. the effect was profound. Mm. And it became his coping mechanism for everything, as, yep. as you probably hear a lot. And then became his only coping mechanism, exactly, his exactly. only one. Yeah,
0: uh, he yeah. was
2: to the point. He was to the point in his addiction that if he kept drinking, he would die, and if he stopped drinking, he would die. Do you know what I mean?
1: That's why I'm laughing or why I'm smiling when you say such harsh words, because I recognize them within me. Um, there was certainly a time. When I was very much identifying with what you just said, um, yeah. and that's that's important. That's actually so important because it describes the pain of addiction, which in its own right is more trauma. It's a, it's an own uh, self self licking ice cream. Um, it just goes round and round and round and round. Yes. Um, it's beautiful to break through that. So you were starting to work with law enforcement. Your son kept working with um, with mental health professionals. And yeah. that was really, really beautiful because you as a parent, you can't really take on that role. You have got a very different role. Uh, did, did you, was that clear to you or did you try to intervene as a nurse? Who was running the show? The nurse in you or the mom in you?
2: That's it. that's the best way to put it. That's the best way to put it because it's such a fine line as that parent, as a parent or or even you know, a spouse, or I always kind of include everyone, because we when we love someone with addiction, it doesn't matter. You, your heart is is completely immersed. And so, you know, that codependency part of it becomes an issue. You have to recognize that. And, you know, the enabling part. So it Mm -hmm. was always a fine line. The problem I think for us was that we had such a close relationship and Mm we, we communicated very, very deeply, like about, like, he's very psychological, very philosophical, Mm -hmm. very um, intuitive. Um, And even, you know, and and he did have a lot, lot of sober years in 15 years, like there were sober years, months, weeks, you know, that we would have very um, intense conversations. And so it was always this fine line of understanding where can I help without enable, where can I,
0: mm.
2: how much am I helping now that I'm hurting? Mm. How much, how many times am I going to put his oxygen mask on and lose my own <laughs> air? And it happened over and over and over again until mm. I said, Oh, I can't do that anymore. I am, I'm drowning over here. I am drowning wow. because I'm trying to keep him alive. And he recognized that too. And we had a moment there was, I I, I write about this in the book. There was a day, there was an event. And it, he was um, trying to he was trying to get himself to intensive outpatient therapy. And in order to do that, he had to be sober.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So he said he would stay with me mm-hmm. to get sober. But he came over with his substance, which is, you know, his DOC was alcohol. And within, within, because it took a couple of days, you know, so within about two to three days, I said, I, I woke up and I just said, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. I love you. I will support you and your sobriety. I will I will be here if you need help when you are sober at any mm. moment.
0: Mm.
2: I will fly anywhere. I will go to the ends of the earth for you to support your sobriety. Mm. And I will always love you. But I can't support anything to do with your addiction anymore because I'm feeding the addiction and I'm taking away
0: my son's life.
1: Wow. Were there uh, further attempts of him to take his life?
2: No, nothing that was overt. He he did have episodes of um we call suicidal ideation. So there's passive and active suicidal ideation. So he had passive thoughts of wanting to die, hmm. but no active, you know, plans or desires. Hmm. But again, those were while he was drinking. Mm. When he's sober, it doesn't exist. Beautiful. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have, now I shouldn't say it doesn't exist because mm. he does have depression. Mm. So there are are very difficult times. Mm. Mm. Um, but when you pound down the serotonin with a hammer mm. for 15 years, well, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. You. It's very hard to regenerate serotonin But it can happen and i and i try to talk to to people about that it does happen it can but it takes time and it takes a lot of work a lot of work
1: and it takes time i can remember the uh it took probably for me half a year three quarters of a year um after stopping drinking when one day i sort of drove along the road there was a street vendor selling strawberries i thought hey, i'll buy some strawberries for the family and i nicked one uh, well not nicked i bought the strawberries put them in the car took one out added and I thought wow this is the most beautiful strawberry i've ever tasted in my life and there was this beautiful feeling come came over me. And it was it was basically, it took this long for my for my body to self-regulate back to actually achieving normal spikes of dopamine, of serotonin, etc. And it was just an amazing feeling. And I thought, wow, the best strawberries. Wow, what did you do to grow them? <laughs> so it was <laughs> was bizarre. So that is it takes, the coolest story. Yeah, it takes time for you to come back to an equilibrium. I think that's it really does. really, really important to know. Um the oh, so many things there. I think it we need to to understand that this is not a quick fix. And I think as parents, we want to go in there as doctors. I'm an anaesthetist, okay? I get called when shit hits the fan. Um, I walk in there, I'm the knight in Chime Now the Special Forces. Okay, guys, move aside and let me deal with it. Bang, 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 done. Okay, that took now 23 minutes. (laughs) Okay, that's often my job. Um, And here you come into such a situation where you're freaking powerless, where you often are helpless because there is not a quick fix of something. We men are particularly bad, regardless of profession, we are fixers, okay? And you can't fix addiction. You can't do with that. So- uh, how did you deal with the fixer in you? Um, how did you deal with the, I want to do it now.
2: I sucked at it because I, like you, I have 15, 20 minutes with my patients or, you know, maybe a little bit more sometimes. And so, you know, you get this finite amount of time, you get in there, you do the job you're supposed to do and, and everybody leaves happy, you hope. And, um, No, that wasn't, you know, the case. I am a fixer for everything, you know, that's what I do. I do. Mm -hmm. I'm a solutions oriented individual there. Everything has a solution. Everything has everything. (laughs) So I drove my son crazy with that. But um, what I learned, what too late again, which is why I say this is so important to learn this early on, is one of the most important things I should have done early on. Well, two things, two things I should have done early on. Number one, I should not have stepped in that very first time when he got his DUI and I stepped in to help with the lawyer and you know the transportation and the, the pay and the, you know the finances whatever should never have done that the very first time and then number 2 I should have learned effective communication and I learned again almost 15 years later so it's been within I guess maybe not 15 maybe 12 or 13 cuz it's been a couple of years there is a form of communication called the CRAFT method, and I'm a big advocate of it because I learned I learned it, and it is community reinforcement and family training is what the acronym is for, but it is the type of communication that would be effective in nearly any situation, but it happens to be very effective for individuals with substance use disorder. As the family member, hmm. if I would have learned to communicate better early on instead of the the you know the the interactions that are i guess negative and they land very hard and they don't resolve anything mm. right because you, everyone's angry and coming from a place of mm. frustration and and lack mm. of knowledge mm. and all these things when you learn how to communicate it can change everything and i did start to learn how to communicate and guess what we did start to communicate so much more fluidly and you know productively mm. and You know, so that's that that's what I would highly encourage individuals to do early on is is Mm. get effective communication training of some kind, whatever kind you like, whatever works for you, Mm. because it does help. If you if you love someone like I did, like I do so much and you want them to you want to help them Mm. without enabling them, without overstepping your own boundaries, without just learn how to communicate with them.
1: (laughs) Just like that. Just like that. But it's <laughs> hard. No, it's not. It's so hard. It's we are take, crap it's- as humans. We are crap in communicating. Communicating for us means talking, talking, not listening, not actually understanding. And that's so... Oh. But no, uh, it is uh, such beautiful words you're saying. Right? <laughs> maybe it should highlight to all the viewers and listeners out there, God, we need some training in that because we're crap in it, okay. If we were not crap in it, there wouldn't be so many wars and so many misunderstandings and so many, you know.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you so much for saying that. No, that's exactly right. but it does it takes a little time and it takes effort and it just like anything, but it depends on what you want this outcome to look like, mm. and how dedicated you are. And I wanted—I wanted my son to have the life that he always wanted, and I love him enough to to put in the work for him. And I know mm. millions of people feel the same way. What do? Just tell me what I have to do, and I'll do it. And that's why I say, learn. It, it took—it really took me a couple of months to get down
0: mm.
2: that communication. I mean, just to you know. Um, I, when I talk to family members, I kind of go through, like I have a sheet that that says, you know, instead of saying it this way, I say it that way. Mm. There's a, good, a great cookbook in the United States that talks about um, um, Eat This, Not That. Have you, heard, have you seen that or heard of that? Eat This, Not That? Tell me more. So it, it's called Eat This, Not That. And it, it, all it is, is showing you what, instead of eating it like this, like, you know, hamburger cheese, you know, hamburger and fries and this way, eat it like this. And you have improved the health, um, you know, of it by
0: mm-hmm.
2: whatever percent, yeah. 50%, 100%. So this is the same type of thing. Say this, not that.
0: I I'm, have an, I, I have an
2: example it says instead of saying something like what's going to be different this time and you know how we say that we say what's going to be different this time or you are you all mad you say i'm really glad you're giving this another try
1: Nice. there's a yeah. different
2: way yeah it's your different way that you're approaching that instead absolutely. of
1: being,
2: and so it's it's little it's really little mm. little tiny alterations in how you're approaching
1: mm.
2: what you're mm. saying that make a big big difference to go a long way
1: absolutely I think there are other ways how parents can also help. Uh, and that is really, again, it comes a bit back to what we said earlier with regards to modeling going out there actually and helping, for example, others. Yeah, You can model that in your own life. We nowadays know that um, there are genomes in our body that we didn't get from mommy and daddy. In other words, the gut microbiome um, and we know that that plays actually a crucial role when it comes to to serotonin levels, when it comes to um, the yeah. way that we are behaving as humans. And uh, I think it is such an such an underestimated uh, yet so powerful intervention to actually change our own nutrition. And to actually look after our guts to stop the leaky gut to stop the to to actually encourage those microbiomes uh, or those those bugs uh, that are living in us and that are helping to to produce the good the good serotonin the the good uh, yes. other uh, neurochemicals. And for those of you who think, what the hell is he talking about? We've um, got about a kilogram and a half, so maybe three pounds or thereabouts of brain tissue of nerve tissue. Tissue up there, you have got the same amount of nerve tissue in there. So Correct. next time you have got a gut feeling, um, yes, there is <laughs> it's something it's like crazy. that. Exactly. And I certainly know that once I actually dealt with my food allergies, once I knew what was actually good for my body, not once I started a Mediterranean food plan, um, where really uh, loads and lots of colors in your food, the more greens, the better. Um, and if you uh, um, um, uh, a variety, basically, and, and cut out the carbs, cut out the shit, uh, the, the yes. highly processed food. Once you do that, your body is different. There was maybe 15 years ago now, uh, Jamie Oliver, Jamie Oliver, an English chef. Um, he went to his local school and he looked what the children were eating at school and it was basically processed. wrap. Um, yes. Indeed. So he said, No, I'll, I'll help you to cook. And he, it was a kind of a revolution that he started there in the, in the school system. And they had all these absent days and all the sick days and, and the shit behavior from the children. The moment they changed nutrition at school, things completely changed. Um, the sick days went down, asthma went down, negative behavior went down, um, they could very clearly demonstrate the benefit of just decent food at lunchtime for the children. It was one intervention that he did that completely changed within the school. And he then changed it from that school to the borough or to the, the little area of sort of five, or seven schools, and then to the county, etc. Um And then the government changed in the UK and the whole thing went. Um, But it was it was like a like a social experiment. And it showed the power of nutrition on behavior. Now imagine you do that step by step every day and do that with your loved one. Um, For me, certainly, when I went into rehab, we had a, a, a Filipino chef there. And we just always had beautiful colorful foods there. And it was the start of a beautiful journey. And I think there is something that you can do. You can as a parent, or as a loved one, you can make sure that the right food and nutrition and supplements are getting to your loved one. Because if you're an alcoholic, boy, your vitamin B levels are shot to hell, your liver is all over the show. There's so many things where you can actually start helping. And this is just Sitting on a dinner table. So, here you've the food that helps you. You have the water, the hydration. Um, you have got the connection because the opposite to addiction is connection. You have got the, ob- the ability to communicate. So, right. the, the evening dinners together might actually be the, the key to you unlocking a relationship with your loved oh ones, gosh. isn't it? Oh. So, <laughs> Just a few things to actually give you an example, and it sounds so stupid. It sounds so simple. You can't just it's fix not. an addict.
2: No, I food, food is medicine. Yeah, uh, yeah, food is medicine. I, I, I have this conversation twenty times a day with my patients. Food is medicine, and we are filling ourselves with filth and expecting grand outcomes not to get sick and that's, that's not going to happen
1: bill, um, what I, a nice word i did so this far elegant and shit um i like that <laughs> bill i might take that on actually bill, <laughs> bill
2: um i like i am i haven't been able to figure out what to do about this but it's something that my son and i talk about a lot he ended up working in um, behavioral health and what he realized and he was working specifically with individuals getting right out of jail and coming into the behavioral health system um, with substance abuse, right? So they were in recovery, and they were getting fed food in in his facility sometimes worse than what they were getting in jail. And what they're getting in jail is (laughs) horrible. So you're taking, so you take an individual, right, who has substance use disorder, or has a criminal background who came from very troubled life, right? Probably never had the the food as medicine sort of understanding, have always eaten food that's feeding the brain negatively. Mm. And we're expecting as a, as a society, we're expecting them to overcome all of that. Mm. When you feed the brain, like you said, when you feed the brain shit, it's just not going to, mm function at an optimal level it's not going to function at an optimal level ever and so one of the things I would love to do in my lifetime is find a way to improve that situation and there are like pockets of people who have found like um I was just watching a show recently or a news story about young individuals on a college campus who um they figured out that like two out of five students had food insecurity. And so they created a on-campus, you know, like food service where people brought in and volunteered to work there and brought in food sources from, you know, all over the city. And everything was really on a volunteer basis. So I said, well, why aren't we doing that more globally for um, people that if you're going to transition from jail to recovery, Hmm. then you have a desire. You have Hmm. that desire in your head to recover and to get better Hmm. and to improve your situation. It has to start somewhere, start it with the food that they're eating, get them the food and the vitamins that will help improve. And it'll enhance the recovery a little bit faster. Hmm. It'll improve it a little bit more because they're getting that that mm. supplement source, that food source that is Absolutely. feeding positive, re- you know, reinforcement. Mm. So it's something I, I want to do probably in my retirement. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, there's, this is such a, a beautiful idea, actually, it is. Uh, and the, you can go one step further, not just learning how to actually cook and how to prepare food, but how to grow food. And, you, you know, it is, I love the, that. As far as I was concerned, had I, if I were ever in power, one of the things that I would make mandatory, uh, would be a gardening and cooking courses for anyone who is on a benefit um so because it is such a powerful thing granted we're here in new zealand with a with a climate where you throw something over your shoulder and and half a day later you need a machete to cut through it um so (laughs) bottom line is a, a lot of things grow really well here and you could make an argument that and i i live in a big town what the hell if you go back to, to the last hundred years, where civil wars has ravaged towns yes. and people were trying to survive in towns, guess what? You can grow some spinach everywhere on a on a bloody windowsill, on a rooftop, etc. So yes. you can yes. you can actually uh, you can do a lot of things, and by actually teaching people how to do that, you give them power they're no longer yeah. helpless they're actually now taking action and that's turning them from a victim to a survivor and that yes. is beautiful and then yes. once you actually learn how to cook with those whatever things you grow uh yes. suddenly you think Whoa, well that is cool and suddenly you yeah. pass those skills on as our ancestors did for such a long time these are all Absolutely. skills that we have forgotten that were uh, that were engineered out of us it's social engineering in the 60s and 70s that we can blame for that that when you know prior to that baking your own bread was normal uh and then it was suddenly uh with advertisement changed into if you bake yourself my God you you need you're obviously poor you're obviously not sophisticated because our microwave nice. dish does exactly that for you here just including the, pas- the plastic yes we know the plastic is probably more nutritious than what is in the food but hey this is another story <laughs> okay yeah I, I, it's it's my hobby horse here so I, I, I'm 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 here standing on the soapbox guys But there is something to be said about that, because I find it very empowering when I look after myself, when I actually hydrate, when I make sure I eat well, when I I have not a standard American diet, but actually no processed food and just stuff that I've prepared. And it gives me pride. It gives me a good feeling. And that is often the start to to go out there. And you can do that as a parent with your addicted son, with your addicted daughter. Give them the life skills. Give them the the incorporate them into a life where you model a different way of coping, a different way of living. And that is yes. what you're doing, Lisa. I mean, this is this is you're going out there and 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 are trying to to help others, and that is such a beautiful and powerful thing. So I'm I'm so grateful to you and all the other mums and dads out there who are trying hard to be there. And I don't want to now exclude the aunties, the nephews, the whoever is out there. <laughs> I give you all They're a true. big hug, okay? Because sure. you're the the unsung heroes um, who are. Trying to help and who are often forgotten about and who are often feeling so helpless, abandoned, and uh, just don't know where to go. Absolutely. So if you feel if you feel that feel that you are fitting to that that description, I think there is one source out there that you might want to have a look at. Lisa, show us the book.
0: <laughs> oh, I'd love to. <laughs> Take a look.
1: That is yeah. good. Incurable hope. Okay, uh, Incurable Hope. Just let that ring off your tongue because <laughs> it is beautiful, okay? Incurable Hope. Where can people get the book?
2: Uh, you can get it wherever books are sold, uh, primarily Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble, Books Million, things like that. Um, nice. It is available right now, and it will be on Audible in oh. about a month. Uh-huh. Um, of course it's on kindle and it's on you know paperback but it will be on audible soon and you can always find me at my website which also has a link directly to it is it okay if i oh yes please, please
1: please 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 <laughs> don't you worry guys i mean you hear it now but look down there into the description of the youtube and the video because all of her links are down there but tell us
2: it's um, at my website is uh, www.lisagenosa.com. And you spell my last name G-E-N-N-O-S-A. G-E-N-N-O-S-A. So lisagenosa.com. Very straightforward. B-O-S-A. So there's a lot of information on there. Um, and and hopefully, um, you know, want to reach out to folks and connect and help others to, you know, make a difference. Um, if, we're, if we're all doing this together. If we're all working together, I mean, no one is doing this alone. No one's by themselves. I mean, you feel like you are, Mm. you feel isolated, but no one is alone. And there's so many of us out there that are willing to Mm. work together and help and and make a difference. Mm. So
1: Mm.
2: it's just that connection.
1: If you think about it, great leaders surround themselves with power teams and where basically they are the dumbest members of that team. So you've yes. got an, uh, someone who helps you with your finances, someone who helps you with, you know, if you're a president, you want to know some specialist on military, specialist on foreign affairs, etc. So that, that's logical to you. Yet here we are fighting this battle often alone, driven no. by shame and guilt to not disclose that we are actually in trouble How would it be if you create a power team where actually you talk to other parents or to other relatives who are much further down the line than you are, who know which resources are out there in person, uh, immediately there? What was to happen if you actually open up to your family physician or to his nurse practitioner in this case, (laughs) and actually say, hey, look, I I think I'm in trouble. Could you imagine, just maybe, just maybe, that there will be a host of information available to you? Indeed.
2: That's that's exactly what is, because people know of my story now, Mm. boy, it it really does, people open up when they know, Mm. when they feel like it's a safe place to have that conversation. Mm. And once they start asking questions, number one, you realize how much they don't know yet.
1: Mm. And you realize
2: how much help you can can provide. Absolutely. Um, and and that's really but but you also realize how isolated and alone that mm. they have been mm. and so you just really try to help people connect because
0: mm.
2: once you do once you start that connection you realize how many people have like you said mm. probably half of the country at least has some affiliations there's some relationship mm. the the numbers that i've have seen are, are there are 25 million individuals in this country with just in just in the US with substance use disorder. And that means that there are around 60 million individuals that are yeah. affected by someone, yeah. directly affected, whether emotionally, financially, yeah. with substance use. So 60 million yeah. people in just just here. So
1: yeah.
2: multiply I, that by the globe.
1: Uh, um I would think that is under reporting. Um, I I would think (laughs) no. Yeah, about three hundred twenty million from memory. Um, so to think that's twenty-five. What is that? Seven percent of the population. Yeah, you wish. You wish.
2: (laughs) I know. I know. I think that's that's probably
1: just the direct. Yeah, that's right. These are. This is the tip of the iceberg. You're describing there. (laughs) I think there's so much more going on there. No, that's cool. Oh, Lisa, you're an amazing woman. Uh, you are a force of nature. You're going out there because you're thirsty uh, to 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 create change. You're thirsty to, to help others because you have been in the darkness. And now you have written this book, which is soon out on Audible. So guys, check it out. Okay, homework for you. Um, and I can't wait to see where you are going, what you're creating next, uh, where your path is leading you um it is uh please 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 stay in touch and I'm, I'm i'm nearly certain that i will get you back in the future because you okay. will transform further you will come up with new ideas because that's what we do um we are so now it's beautiful ah uh, lisa thank you so much for being a guest on my show that was a, a beautiful insight this was a beautiful talk thank you so much
2: Thank you so much for having me. I had a, a great talk today and I really just really appreciate the, the time with you today.
1: Thank you very much. And you guys out there look after yourself and live with passion. Okay, bye. I
0: never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.